This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And a very good afternoon to you. It is so good to be talking to you for the first time in 2023. I do hope your new year is off to a great start. Today on the Country Hour, a new world record was set over the weekend when 1,200 women beekeepers from right around the world shared photos of themselves and their bees and their hives on social media. We had women from Mongolia, Moldova, Japan, all over the US, all over the UK, Poland, Czechoslovakia, and uh, one woman from Ukraine. It sounds like it was a huge success. You will learn more about that shortly before news headlines at half past 12 today. And also, uh, just after the news headlines today and across to the Bureau of Meteorology, some local residents are really critical of the way the Donnybrook bushfire was handled by authorities over the weekend when the fire flared up again. Saturday morning, the creek behind the property next door to us had been left burning and resources were pulled out of it and that got away and the result was Saturday. It was awful. They did leave too soon. I mean, the results say that. And, yeah, people are upset. You feel on your own. You feel abandoned, really. If you were in the region and part of that um part of the the fire effort. Can you let me know what your experience was? Was it similar to Melanie O'Farrell? Do you feel let down? Or what was your perspective of how the fire was handled? Melanie's from Glen Mervyn, just near Donnybrook, and critical of how the fire in her region was handled over the weekend. And Darren Clem, the Fire and Emergency Services Commissioner, will respond to those criticisms just after half past 12 today. The text is 0448 nine double two six zero four it would be great to hear from you this afternoon it is seven past twelve here on the country hour and fruit and vegetable growers in western australia's north have seen their freight costs to the state's south double with the only major road between the east kimberley and southern wa now cut off due to flood damage transporters are having to cart produce interstate to access the Perth market. Chris Robinson runs Araya Orchards in Kununurra and he says transporting his fruit the long way round to Perth doesn't come cheap. Currently we're having to transport through the Northern Territories, South Australia, into Western Australia through Port Augusta. And the consequences of that are basically, one, it takes about twice as long to get there. I've got product leaving Kununurra today and it's not expected there till Thursday, so that's four days to get to Perth. And uh, that subsequently also doubles the cost of freight. So it just means we've got to be far more careful and on the ball with what we're sending Otherwise, you get to the point where um, things become unviable and you start losing money. Freight rates are already um, excessively high. They have been for probably the last 12, 18 months. And then now to have to cop a double on that, it just, just means you've got to be more careful. So what produce has been impacted? Uh, well, limes is one. Limes will become extremely marginal. So uh, I will, probably won't be sending limes out of Kununurra into Perth. Pawpaws we're being very careful with now. They are still still viable, but uh, the margins are, are certainly significantly reduced. 
Uh, the increased freight now, depending on how they bill us and this sort of comprises somewhere between a quarter and a third of the total value of the crop. Wow. Okay. So how do you manage that? Oh, we've explained the situation to our market agents and uh, asked them to try and recover that from the consumer, how successful they are in doing that. Uh, we have a good relationship with our market agents, so, so they'll try the hardest, but whether the consumer's prepared to pay the extra cost of the extra freight to get stuff to, to market, I'm not sure. Mm. What about shelf life of the produce that you are sending down to Perth? Is that impacted at all by these, these long journeys? Yes and no. Certainly with poor poor, I think we can hold them long enough to get them there. Things like limes and stuff where the consumer or the markets want them as hard green or dark green colour, there's an extra time with those on the road and they might lose some colour um, and not look quite as good. But, yeah, I think yeah, normally we can manage that and hold our, our fruit long enough to, to get it in on the extra couple of days of travel. And I suppose your imports will also be impacted by uh, these increased freight costs as well? Yeah, we've got a, uh, we're expecting a, a truckload of seedlings to come up from Perth end of March. And uh, that's only, what, six weeks away. And uh, they'll have to come the long way, which means that there'll be plants, uh, seedlings in a truck for four days instead of two. So that increases the risk on those. And it also double the freight on those to get here. They're minor issues. We'll, we'll work through those when the time comes. And you've got some staff that are stuck down in the southwest of the state as well, is that right? I've got staff stuck in Carnarvon who uh, are due to come back and they almost certainly won't be coming back through the um, Great Northern Highway. So they've got a 6,000k trip the long way around, which in a little um, car is uh, is a long way. Mm. Um, Whether they can do that or not, I'm not sure. How long are you looking at? this being the situation for Chris? Well, I haven't been able to get on the main roads to get an estimate of when they think they might be able to open the road, but certainly I can't see. If they've got to use the old low-level crossing at Fitzroy, whether to build a, a temporary bridge or to use that as a crossing, that can't happen until the river levels drop down to quite low levels, which puts it sometime in the dry season. So that makes it, I, I don't know, I'd be guessing it, April, May, maybe even June, before they can even get to that. Are you thinking that you'll be able to wear the costs of these huge freight rate hikes for as long as the bridge might be down? It'll be difficult, but I probably don't anticipate that anyone's going to subsidise freight for me to get my produce out. Um, It'd be great if they did, but I'm not expecting that. And there's a bit of produce coming out of the ord right now, but things really will ramp up in the next few months and as the rest of the year unfolds. Is this something that's going to impact the region broadly? I think so. I think any produce that's heading towards Perth will um, be be significantly impacted, especially on some of the, the cheaper produce when you get into pumpkins and stuff and you double the freight on those. And some of those things might become quite marginal going into Perth. But equally, a lot of that, a lot of that product does um, drift into the eastern states markets as well. So you might see um, either increased prices in Perth for those sort of produce, or um, a shortage of supplies in Perth, which will result in increased prices anyway. Is there anything that can be done now to help you get through this tough patch? I would like to hear a, a bit of a plan or a timeline 
on a guesstimate on when they might be able to get people to Fitzroy Crossing or whenever that road might open again. I haven't been able to, to find a, a timeline on when that might be happening. It's quite likely they don't know when that's going to be because they haven't fully assessed it yet. In terms of subsidies, I think the, the subsidies are more applicable to freight coming into Kananara so that people can still operate their businesses. I think we can live with what we're having to deal with sending stuff out, even though it's more expensive, but I think we can probably live with that. Stuff coming in, you know, the local community doesn't like having to pay a lot more for their fruit and veg and veggie groceries in town. Chris Robinson, he's from Araya Orchards in Kununurra and he was speaking to Steph Sinclair and incredible to think that that's going to be, well, months according to Chris. It's very difficult to get a time frame at this stage but, you know, April, May, June possibly in this sort of situation and dealing with those sort of freight costs and uh, going by the pictures, the, the video the photos I've seen from this part of Western Australia, it does look like some incredible damage and it is going to be taking months to get things up and running again by the looks of uh, some of those images. 14 past 12 here on the Country Hour. Well, with parts of the state currently assessing that flood damage and pretty much all of the grain-growing regions celebrating two incredible grain harvests, I did hear last week... 26 million tonnes this year, so uh, blitzing last year's grain harvest. And two back-to-back like that is an incredible to think about. Uh, drought probably is the last thing on your mind when you're uh, looking at those two situations. But it could actually be the perfect time to be planning for the next dry time. That's the advice from Chris Rawlins. He's from the Regional Investment Corporation, which provides low-cost drought loans that can be used for drought preparation and also climate adaption. He says it's always a good idea to plan for drought. I think it's fair to say that most of the country is probably not thinking drought top of mind at the moment. It's been a particularly damp year uh, across all parts of Australia and and particularly in WA at the moment. The fact is, though, it it does seem that our our new climactic reality is periods of of extremes with, uh, with large periods of wet followed by periods of dry. The drought loan is designed to support primary producers through the drought cycle. And the best time to plan for for dry um, is before it happens. We found that a lot of our customers who've taken uh, up a drought loan, which were typically during the the back end of of the worst drought we've just come out of, uh, are doing things like uh, investing in improved uh, water storage facilities, potentially accessing new blocks of land that have um, different climactic profiles, um, thinking about investments in technology that helps them plan for uh, more precise farming activity across their enterprise. There's a range of things that can be done. Basically, it's up to the farmer in terms of how they'd like to use their loan. But really, the time to think about the next drought is before it's hit. So it's not just for water storage. There's a range of other things that people do. Yeah, absolutely. And as I said, it's really up to the farmer to, to, to decide what's right right for their business. Certainly a lot of our farmers with the drought loan use the loan to restructure their, their cash flow in their business, which would allow them to um, invest in, in a range of, of different activities. Look, water storage and, and thinking about, um, you know, preparing silage or, or thinking about other activities, it's a great time to do it before before the dry hits. And particularly in an environment now where sustainability planning is front and centre for a lot of farmers, it really depends on the industry that people are in. But, um, you know, as a, as a government agency, we, we're kind of backing 
our farmers as, as the experts in what they need for their for their enterprise. And, and this is just a fantastic financial tool for them to access to build a little bit more certainty in their planning. You mentioned restructuring. So can this money be used to restructure existing loans and put businesses in a better financial position? Yeah, it can. The, the drought loan can be used to refinance uh, existing commercial debt. One of the eligibility criteria for all RIC loans is holding existing commercial debt with a commercial lender. Um, you do need to have an existing commercial provider for, for your loans. But some farmers have certainly looked to restructure their debt to a concessional rate with the RIC, which typically is a little bit, uh, a few percentage points lower than what's available available um, from a, a commercial lender and use that to restructure their cash flow. One of the criteria is demonstrate financial need. Uh, you mentioned existing commercial debt. What else defines financial need? RIC loans, um, while they're available to all farmers, they're certainly not, not everyone's eligible and they're not for everyone. To qualify for a RIC loan, you do need to demonstrate financial need, which means um, demonstrating an external disruption to your farm business. For those uh, who have previously been eligible for a drought loan, that was was pretty easy to do in the midst of a drought when most producers were um, experiencing long periods of dry and, and substantial impacts to their cash flow through downturns in their in their income. But basically, uh, you you can demonstrate any type of external disruption to qualify for a RIC loan. That external disruption does need to be reasonably substantial and demonstrated over at least a 12-month period in the past and potentially a 12-month period in advance, so a two-year aggregate disruption. Now, a lot of farm businesses across the country are experiencing a range of different types of disruptions at the moment, whether that be through the recent floodings that have, the floods that have been experienced, there's biosecurity incursions, um, but that is a really critical requirement to qualify for a RIC loan. The program has been in place for a few years now. How many loans have been made within Western Australia? There's around 100 uh, loans that have been settled in WA, which is a, a, a smaller portion of the overall RIC customer base. We've got close to 2,800 customers across the country. That does really reflect the fact that the, um, the, the drought loan and the recent drought was most keenly felt on the eastern seaboard, which is where, where most customers uh, for the RIC currently are. But certainly there's been good uptake and good interest from across WA for RIC products in recent times. And look, you know, we will want to make sure that the WA farmers are aware that this is just one of many financial tools that might be available to them as they plan their future farm activity. That is Chris Rawlins. He's from the Regional Investment Corporation and he was speaking to Lucinda Jose. And if that's got you thinking, you know, maybe I should have a look into this, the best place to get more information about um, getting one of those loans is just search online for Regional Investment Corporation. 20 past 12. You're with Belinda Varischetti on The Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. And very glad you could be part of the show today. Shortly, an update from the newsroom. That'll be at half past 12 today. And just before the news, just before Jonathan Beale steps into the studio, uh, going to take you to Tasmania because there were sort of two women in beekeeping records broken over the weekend. Now, one was online. So all these women from all different parts of the world submitting photos of themselves with their hives and their bees. And I think that was about 1,200 women participated in that social media event. But there was also an in-person event in Tasmania, which also broke the sort of gathering meeting of beekeeping women. So two in one. Well done to them. You'll find out more about it shortly here on The Country Hour at 21 past 12. 
Well, rangeland pastoralists could soon be using satellite technology to find out which plant species are growing across their stations. Russell Shaw is the rangeland's natural resource management drought hub manager, and he says knowing exactly what's on your property can really improve your productivity. If we could know what those species were, so we get an above-ground bioestimate of total vegetation, well, what are the species in there and what are those species composition in that area that are useful for pasture production? And that stems into a whole lot of other work that works into the economic planning for a property, that I've got this species here, it's high value, its nutrition value is this, its other one's that, and I've got that much per tonne within that land system. So then I can do my budgeting for feed budgeting, I can do my forward projections for my market, uh, I can do my estimates of weight gain per day based off the nutrient load of those species. So it starts to become quite fine, but it's a very big area of machine learning. So the machine has to learn, we have to learn, and then it morphs into artificial intelligence so you get to the point where the machine can run the algorithm and have very strong confidence interval. But it takes a bit to get to that point. It's not so easy. I mean, I did it for five pasture species in a mixed ward and I did it for 12 agricultural species and it took um, 70, 80 iterations to get to a point where I had 95% confidence in what the satellite did indeed separate and identify species. So how many species have you created the signature for and how many do you hope to? Well I've got the signature for 17 species, 12 of them farming species, five pastoral species but I think we need to look at anywhere from four to five hundred species, but it's more to point the focus on the prime species that are the most valuable, and they're also the most environmentally sensitive because they're grazed and they can be taken out through overgrazing. So we need to identify uh, where they're sitting in the landscape and their percentage in the landscape, and we get very fine and precise measurements of the condition and the health of the landscape and the health of the business. But I'd like to get into a confidence interval of 95%. To say to the parcelers, this species here, nutritional value is 18 19% protein, and it's in this land system, and you've got 25,000 hectares of it, and that species shows up as dominating 18 or whatever percent of the landscape. You can then work out your tonnage, you can then work out your nutrition loads, you can then work out how much that's worth to you in making your cattle saleable. And what kind of timelines are you looking at in terms of working with pastoralists on developing this and having something that people can use across the rangelands. How long's a piece of string? I mean, the first time I ran the algorithm, I used an old antiquated desktop and it took 25 hours to run the algorithm. And then I got a, a better machine and it takes 10 minutes now. But it's already got the basic structure of the SQL or the algorithm. So the machine's learning. And the machine's learning, I'm learning. And eventually it will get to the point where you just put the data in and it will be artificial intelligence, it will just run it automatically. So who knows? I don't know. I've got to get good, reliable ground data, and that's the most difficult part. Rangeland's NRM Drought Hub Manager, Russell Shaw, talking to Peter DeCryf. 24 past 12, uh, Jonathan Beale will be along shortly with an update from the newsroom for you. Just before that, I want to tell you more about this new world record that was set over the weekend when 1,200 women beekeepers from around the world shared photos of themselves and their bees on social media. It wasn't the only record broken over the weekend. The online event coincided with an in-person event held in Tasmania, which also set a record for the most women in beekeeping altogether 
in the one room at the same time. Jenny McLeod from Sister Hives Australia says it was an incredible experience. It was so exciting to see photos going up, not just from Tasmania, not just from Australia, but from at least 25 countries from all over the world. It's just been astonishing. So this was an attempt to break a record for the most photos of women beekeeping uploaded to social media in 24 hours. How did it all work for you? It's been quite incredible. We've been working with an accredited international or based in Tasmania, but working all over the world. Uh, world record company, Extreme Excellence, and we have found working with them to be magnificent. They've allowed us to set a world record with them, and through that process, we've been able to change the face of beekeeping in one big, loud clap. So by that, you mean just having so many women involved in beekeeping? Absolutely, and I think there's always been women beekeepers. It's not a mystery to anyone that's a beekeeper. We know that we're out there and we know that we're doing this. I think that we're not always visible in beekeeping. It has been traditionally a male-led industry, but this was an opportunity for us to say, come on, women, make yourself visible. We want to see you. We want to see you beekeeping. We want to see what you do, and that's what this world record has allowed us to do. Where were some of these women? Oh, goodness, we had women from Mongolia, Moldova, Japan, all over the US, all over the UK, Poland, Czechoslovakia, and uh, one woman from Ukraine who's also going to be part of our documentary. Now, you had to have 1,200 female beekeepers to successfully set this record. How many do you think you got in the end? So this record's actually never been set before, Fee. So this is a first time. We were aiming to get a 1,000 women registered. We've had well over that amount registered. I think it's creeping up to more like 1,500 or 1,600 women registered. And what happened with the digital event is that the posts went up and how that those impacts were tracked through an impact, like a system online, and we were able to see how many people we reached over that 24-hour period, which was absolutely mind-blowing for us. 2.8 million people were impacted by the posts that women had shared all over the world. Tell me about the woman in the Ukraine. That must have been mm. tricky for her, and how did she sort of get onto this? It's amazing. I think... Talking to her, we we did get a chance to meet with her on Zoom and and many other participants just before the event. And she was telling us she was listening to bombs falling around her apiary while she'd get up the next day and go and check her bees. But she was also a researcher building uh, and researching how to make a robotic hive, which just sounds so fascinating. And for us sitting here in Australia, you know, we're so sheltered from all of those tensions that are happening in the world and to hear her carrying on with her life like normal was just you know it's hard to imagine. So she got a photo to you? She did she certainly did. Wow wow and did she sort of mention what it was like beekeeping there at the moment? Look she didn't talk so much about that and I think she spoke a lot about building the robotic hive and I think I can only imagine or I can't really imagine but I think trying to have a normal life uh, while you're in a war zone It'd be the most traumatic experience I, I can't imagine. We, we didn't ask her too much about what it was like. Just listen to her research. Did any of the other participants from around the world strike you as being unusual or had a, a, an interesting story or anything? Oh, so many of them. I think of one woman in Pakistan. So her and her daughter 
set up the first and only mother-daughter beekeeping business in Pakistan and she shared the most magnificent photographs of, of mountains and ice and snow and, you know, both of them down the bottom of a stony gully with these huge beehives and it was just wonderful to see that there, there were people everywhere. It, it's hard to express just how overwhelming it was and I was saying yesterday I think it's going to take a lot of time for me personally to um, digest how I feel about the experience and the impact that it's actually have because it's not just going to stop now, it's going to keep going. Now also, you also were involved in another world record. Mm. Tell me mm. a, li- a little bit about that one and how did that go? So it's interesting, Fee. So the digital world record and the in-person world record, not only were they the first of their kind in the world, they were also the the first to ever happened two at the same time. So it, it's been an extraordinarily um, huge organising feat for everybody behind the scenes. Now, the in-person world record happened on Saturday uh, at Ripple Farm Regenerative Hub, and we had we had over 116 women registered, but because of the heat, we ended up with over 70 women uh, joining us for the event, which is still a world record, and it's absolutely magnificent. And of those 70 women, we had about eight or nine flying in from interstate. So we had Queensland represented, we had New South Wales, Victoria, and South Australia represented at that in-person event. You can just hear the joy in her voice after such a great weekend. Jenny McLeod telling you all about the Women in Beekeeping world records, not one but two, that were set over the weekend. One was online, uh, all those women, 1,200 of them, sharing their photos of themselves and their bees and their hives and their backgrounds, a little bit about their, their lifestyle from all over the world. And then that gathering in Tasmania, like the in-person get-together, which was also a world record. So, yeah, Jenny um, just beaming after that, and she was telling Fiona Breen all about it. This is the Country Hour. It is 29 to 1, and Jonathan Beale is here. What's in the headlines, Jonathan? Thanks, Belinda. In the headlines, a community meeting is due to be held this afternoon in Donnybrook, where a bushfire continues to challenge firefighters. The blaze, which has been burning for almost a week, has destroyed one house, damaged three others, and injured some residents. Some locals have criticised the Department of Fire and Emergency Services for downgrading the blaze to a watch and act on Saturday before it was returned to emergency level later. Later that day. Rescue teams in Nepal are resuming the search for four passengers still missing after a plane plunged into a gorge, killing 68 other people on board. At least one witness has reported hearing cries for help from the wreckage after the plane crashed near the town of Pokhara while trying to land at a newly opened airport. And a new report has identified more than 7,000 serious incidents, including serious injury, abuse and neglect in disability group homes settings over the past four years. Some of the incidents detailed in the National Disability Insurance Scheme Quality and Safeguards Commission report involve a person with disability being exposed to pornography or allegedly sexually assaulted by a support worker. More news, Belinda at one o'clock. Jonathan, thank you for that update. And as Jonathan was just mentioning about the fire in Donnybrook, we'll go into that in a little more detail shortly too, just about some of those criticisms about what happened over the weekend with the authorities and the way the authorities handled that situation. Some locals critical saying that there weren't enough resources dedicated to the fire just to stay on top of it. That's to come between now and the news at one. Just before one, off to 
Uh, Muche, Terry Birkin, along with the results of the Muche cattle market today. Not many head there today, but um, that's what happens at this time of year, apparently. So Terry will go through the yarding and the prices for you just before one o'clock. In a moment, off to the Bureau of Meteorology. This is The Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia. And, well, I've been away so long, I almost forgot Joey's surname, but it just came back to me in a flash. Joey Rawson is here from the Bureau of Meteorology. Joey, it's good to be back. I hope your New Year's off to a great start. And, gee, there's been a lot happening since I've been away with the floods in the north of the state and, um, yeah, the fire situation around Donnybrook over the weekend. And we'll get to that in a bit more detail shortly. But let's start in the north of the state. How's it looking today? Yeah, there has been a lot happening over the last few weeks, especially with the Fitzroy River. Uh, crazy amounts of uh, water running down that river and the the bridge collapsing. It's, uh, yeah, it been uh, Quite amazing, really. Um, so starting with the north of the state, um, we do have some showers and thunderstorms developing at the moment, uh, basically through the Kimberley, more through the northern half. Um, there is the potential to get some quite good falls out of those thunderstorms. So 50 to 80 millimetres is possible uh, during this afternoon and evening. And as far as like uh, the rivers responding to that rain, um, the small tributary rivers are responding. We've had some responses yesterday and the day before. However, Fitzroy River isn't seeing much of a response because uh, it's just such a, a bigger river and the storms are quite isolated in nature. Um, so that's going to be a similar sort of case for the next you know, three or four days with these thunderstorms developing over, over the Kimberley. And as we uh, track through to, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, we're going to have also showers and thunderstorms over the Pilbara and, and northern Gascoyne. And that's going to be a similar case all the way through to Friday. But the heaviest rainfall is expected over that northern half of the Kimberley, um, especially through to Thursday. And it's only in the northern parts of the Fitzroy River catchment. So uh, just repeating, at, at this stage, it's unlikely to get some renewed flooding uh, in the Fitzroy River. However, we're keeping a close eye on that, Belinda. Yeah, I'm sure that you are. All right, let's go to the south of the state. How are conditions this afternoon and what are you expecting for the rest of the week, Joey? Yeah, so um, it's not the greatest news for the south of the state, especially through the goldfields and 
eastern parts of the central wheat belt um, as we speak. We've got these sunstorms that have uh, developed over the last hour or two and and uh, they're looking like they've got all the ingredients to produce a little bit of kick to them. So um, currently we're just about to put out a damaging wind thunderstorm warning out and that area is going to cover the far eastern parts of the central wheat belt, uh, the southern parts or southwestern parts of the goldfields and even stretching into the northern parts of the southeast coastal district. So that's uh, for the risk of damaging winds. So winds um, getting above 90 kilometres per hour. And then during the afternoon, there is the potential that they'll they'll get a little bit more sting to them. So there's the risk of heavy rainfall with those thunderstorms, as well as the potential for large hail. So um, a fair bit of activity going on through that area. And some of the towns that may be at risk of these storms are Kalgoorlie and Kambalda and, and Norseman. So um, if you are in those towns, keep an eye on the Bureau's warnings. But then, at, oh, yeah, you go, go on. Yeah, what, so what sort of falls? I, I know it's difficult with sort of thunderstorm activity, but have you got any idea what kind of rainfall can be expected, oh, there, Joey? There's a potential for 20 to 50 millimetres you know, through that area. So uh, pretty good. And, and those falls happening over a, quite a short period of time. So, um, yeah, and they're going to go over. It's like a train effect. The storm's going to go over the same area just to keep um, bringing up that those falls. So, um, yeah, certainly a risk period this afternoon. All right, let's move on to Tuesday and the rest of the week. How does it pan out? Yeah, so that activity that we've got in the goldfields is going to move out to the east. And then we start getting a trough developing down the west coast blender and, and that causes more problems for us because uh, it's going to bring some quite hot and dry conditions to the southwest and and also the potential for thunderstorms. So as we uh, track through to uh, Wednesday and Thursday, um, the thunderstorms will start developing down that trough. So on Wednesday, the thunderstorms potentially will be in the northern parts of the Gascoigne district. But then on Thursday, they'll stretch further into uh, the central wheat belt and, and central west and even possibly into the lower west and great southern. And then on Friday, they start moving a little bit further north. But from Thursday onwards, we're going to have this trough on the west coast and a high pressure ridge to the south. And that's going to stay around until you know, early next week, which means hot, dry and potentially windy conditions for a sustained period of time. So n- not the greatest news for fire in the landscape at the moment. So, um, yeah, that, that's the, the other thing we're keeping a strong eye on, Belinda. All right. Well, it's good to have those details anyway. Uh, warnings. What have you got? Uh, we've got a... Strong wind warning basically along the whole coastline of WA, but uh, from the Esperance coast along the south coast all the way up the west coast uh, to the northwest cape is uh, for a strong wind warning, so it's a really good strong sea breeze. And also for tomorrow we're going to have a strong sea breeze all the way up the west coast, uh, basically you know, from the southwest capes to the northwest capes. Uh, we've got a, mud, mud, a minor flood warning for the Fitzroy River and we've also got a heat wave warning for just some parts of the state. All right. Well, there's a bit on that list this afternoon, Joey. Thank you for those details.
Thank you. It is a 20 to 1 here on the Country Hour, checking the rainfall now. So being a Monday, this is a look back at the last two days. So the last 72 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, checking 5 mils and over. In northern and eastern forecast districts, in the Kimberley, Bedford Downs Airstrip 31, Camballan 83, Country Downs 10, Curtin Aero 51, Signet Bay 70, Debessa 23, Derby Aero 56, Diggers Rest, 88, Drysdale River Station, 24, Allen Bray, 42, Faraway Bay, 50, Fitzroy Crossing, Aero, 27, Flora Valley, 20, Gibb River, 20, Gogo Station, 31, Kachana, 24, Kimberley Downs, 32, Kununurra Aero, 34, Kununurra Checkpoint, 16, and Kununurra, 79, Lansdowne, 8, Leopold Downs, 31, Marion Downs, 44, Mount Barnett, 53, Mount Kraus, 13, Mount Winifred, 56, Morida, 22, Napier Downs, 56, Old Mornington Homestead had 14, Parry Creek Farm, 38, Siddons Creek, 38, Sturt Creek, 10, Theda, 15, Udiella, 45, Winjana Gorge, 62, Wyndham Aero, 55, Yampy Sound, 20, and Yumbu, 38. In the Pilbara, Bonnie Downs, 11, Newman Aero, 8, Parabadu Aero, 9, and Yarry, 8. The Gascoigne, Bulga Downs, 7, Kerry Downs, 24, Minina, 11, Mini Creek, 6, Payne's Find, 5, and Williamberry, 15. The Interior, Warburton Airfield had 5, and the Goldfields, Credo, 7, and Linster Aero, 7. To the southwest Land Division, the Central West, Mullawar, 6. And another uh, rain gauge in Mullawar had 14, so a bit of variation there. And Woolgarong, 5. And the Central Wheat Belt, Bonnie Rock had 12, and Waielke had 6. 18 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And taking a look at, well, there are so many different industries at the moment who are short of workers and trying to figure out a way of finding those workers for the future. This was a problem last year, the year before. It's ongoing in 2023. And today, taking a look at how one part of the wool industry is trying to address that and get more wool classes into the system. And also, Optimiche for the results of the cattle market. First, though, to the southwest of the state, where a bushfire east of Donnybrook has destroyed a property damaged three other properties and injured some residents who received burns while defending their homes. There's also been criticism with some locals saying the fire, which had been burning for about a week, should not have been downgraded and not enough resources were dedicated to staying on top of it. Melanie O'Farrell was on her property in Glen Mervyn near Donnybrook on Saturday when the fire flared up again. We didn't even know that the fire had been downgraded and Friday night we were allowed back to our property so we patrolled and looked all night. Saturday morning the creek behind the property next door to us had been left burning and resources were pulled out of it and that got away and the result was Saturday. It was awful. Talk us through what, what happened and what you and your family experienced. 
Um, my son had gone out on a patrol just checking and he got to the very corner of our property and the property behind us and he phoned and said, Mum, fire, fire. And I said, where? And he said, at my feet. And the time it took us to get to the back of the property and it had already pretty much burnt half across our property. Um, the boys were trying really hard. At that stage, we didn't have, it was only neighbours here. There was no one here at all other than us and it had burnt through our neighbour's property, burnt her chickens, damaged her partner was burnt, unfortunately, and it just took off. It was just so quick. It was frightening. Have you ever seen anything like that before? Never, never in my life and I never want to see it again, ever. Did you save your property? Yes, we've saved most of our property. We've lost um, the back two paddocks um, and all the fencing. Honestly, we are pretty unscathed compared to what others have suffered. So we're very grateful for that. Um, I think it was more to do with the fact that it started here and got bigger as it, as it went along and the wind behind it was just absolutely insane but it, it could have been stopped if they had have stayed the Friday night and completely blacked out that creek instead of leaving it none of us none of us would have been suffering what we are now and to the family that lost their home I'm just devastated for them. So Melanie on that point then um, did, did you were you aware that the fire then had been downgraded? Not, not at all. We, we have received very little information. The only information we have pretty much got is either by family outside of the fire zone or from Facebook and asking, you know, people on, on our community group, what's happening, what's happening. And when you're in the middle of a fire, you just can't stop and do that every five minutes. You, you, you're busy. Of course, of course. And, and and so then you're aware that, and the concern is, A, the, the, the fact that the fire was downgraded and we'll get a better understanding of why that happened, but also that the, the, those that were fighting the fire, the firefighters, then left that, that creek area where yes. there was still uh, flames, where there was still a, a fire burning. Yes, yes. Um, it was considered to be, um, I think that they call it blacked out. They considered it to be safe. Um, but it was obviously not safe because the results were just devastating for a lot of people. So the feeling is that they left too soon? They did leave too soon. I mean, the results say that. And, yeah, people are upset. Your neighbours, how do they feel about what's happened? Do they share your feelings? Very angry. Very angry. The lady next door to me is such a lovely, lovely person and she's a chicken farmer and helping that poor woman pick up her her burnt chickens is a, an experience I never want to have again because, you know, it, it's heartbreaking. You know, you don't know whether you can do much. All I could do was help her bath them in water. There's no supplies. You can't get people in and out to help. So it's just... You feel on your own. You feel abandoned, really. Melanie O'Farrell from Glen Mervyn near Donnybrook, critical of how the fire in her region was handled over the weekend. 
18 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And this on the text from Jocelyn who says, I concur with the people of Donnybrook about the fire being badly handled over the weekend. The DFAS excuse given on ABC News this morning was that it broke containment lines because of unusually strong easterly winds. Did they not look at the forecast? The southeasterly has been blowing its head off all summer anywhere south of Geraldton. Another example of a Perth City office-based decision to leave the site rather than a locally based one on forecast conditions. Thank you for that, Jocelyn. The text is zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Uh twelve to one is the time. Now Darren Clem is the Fire and Emergency Services Commissioner and he says the level of resources allocated to a fire is not activated by the warning level. I guess the point I'll make here is that if we leave a fire on uh, on emergency warning for a long period of time, where you know perhaps the fire is not uh, is not is stationary, uh, it, it might be contained or but not controlled within within a mineral earth break, then the actual the benefit of the emergency warning for the community is diluted over time because it's just on for so long, and so there is some benefit in in keeping the community adequately warned in. You know where circumstances permit that the, you might go from a emergency warning down to watch an act and then back up to to emergency warning again uh, if if indeed it's required and and it appears as I said it's a, it was a DVCA incident on the Friday uh, sorry on the Saturday and, um, and and when it went back up I think uh, mid afternoon around about twenty past two I think it did go from watch an act back up to emergency warning because. Yeah, the, the community uh, needed that higher level of warning, and the the, thing, the information we put in the warnings is is very much outward focused to to make sure that the community's got as much information as they can possibly have, and it relates to you know what, what's actually going on with the fire in terms of its behaviour. Is it fast? Is it slow? What directions it moving in? Is it controlled? Um, you know, current wind direction, forecast wind direction, those sorts of things what the firefighters are actually doing on the ground so that the, the community understands exactly what uh, what the activities are that are being carried on uh, at that particular time, what roads are closed. And we often, um, you know, we always provide that safe route of exit so that, you know, people don't end up, you know, running into dead ends and, and block roads and the like. Um, and then a whole raft of other information around power and water and telecommunications and school and, and those sorts of things. And then a bit of information about you know about the incident itself, whether you know the fire was deliberately lit, whether we know that, where it's suspicious, those sorts of things. So, uh, and yeah. so then, what about in the downgrading process? What's the the trigger point then to downgrade an emergency warning to a watch and act? Um, it'll do. Uh, it'll have to do with the with the fire behaviour, but um, that's only part of it. Uh, it. It also has to do whether we, uh, you know, the firefighters have managed to get a, a break around the fire. Um, and um, you know that often takes some time to to get that, and and what we mean by that is you know a, a bulldozer or a front end loader, uh, or out in the wheat belt we we might use a plough or something similar to to actually get mineral earth. So we've got we've got the edge of the fire is is actually up against uh, up against soil rather than being up against vegetation. Uh, so there's certainly that. There's there's the weather forecast, uh, weather conditions, um, and and observed weather conditions on the ground because because often they're they're different. Uh, and then night and day, we we know that 
uh, during the night it's cooler, often the humidity goes up and um, and so the, the risk uh, reduces slightly. Not always the case and I, and I think Woorooloo is a really good example of that, Nadia, where we had those you know, particularly difficult conditions on the Monday and the Tuesday night um, from memory. Can you just explain then why firefighters leave a fire that is not totally out? And the, the specific criticism, and, and certainly coming from a Melanie and her neighbours, was around that sort of the, the creek area um, and that fire was sort of still burning. She said they were told it had been sort of blacked down or blacked out. Maybe you can explain what that means. Um, and their concern is that the firefighters left prematurely from that area and that's, you know, and then the next day that flared up again. Once again, I, I don't know the, the detail of, of uh, exactly what occurred on that on the Saturday, but um, you know, in terms of blacking out, uh, there, there'll be decisions made about the depth of that. So, uh, what that means is from from the edge of the fire where where it runs up against uh, the mineral earth break, then a decision will be made about you know how far back uh, you black that out, and that might be 20 metres, it might be 50 metres, it might be it will also uh, encompass dealing with with large trees that might be close to the edge of the fire uh, where we get you know issues where the tree might be burning inside and then it falls over and, and the fire takes off again. So um, it, it's not quite as, as simple as just putting out the first metre of a burning edge. You, you, you need to go back a, a set distance that's worked out on, on a whole range of factors, you know, including weather, vegetation type, terrain is also uh, important, uh, as well as you know, the confidence level around uh, the mineral earth break you've been able to get in place. And that's not quite often driven by um, the terrain uh, and the presence of rocks and, and creeks and all the other bits and pieces that go into, into the landscape. Uh, uh, Commissioner, if residents see then that a fire has gone down to a watch and act, isn't mm. it reasonable for them to assume the danger has passed? Well, no. Uh, I think there is a there is a raft of well, I know there's a raft of information in the um, in the various warnings. Certainly, emergency warning, and I, and I think it is you know well known. Emergency warning is the highest level, and uh, and it, and it's only I think reasonable for people, and and certainly your uh, your uh, person that was on from the community down there, uh, reasonable for them to to assume that emergency warning is is meaning that the fire's in a in a really dangerous phase and and you know that that's what we want uh, the community to to understand and the watch and act though is 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 equally as important because it, it does still speak to to changing conditions and and the requirement for the community to to maintain their vigilance and and be prepared um, to act Darren Clem fire and emergency services commissioner Speaking to Nadia Mitsopoulos. Six minutes to one. The results of the Mishé cattle market shortly. First, though, it may be a new year, but there are some of the challenges from last year uh, continuing into the new year. And at the top of the list of challenges continues to be the shortage of workers. To try and attract more workers to a range of industries, training institutes like TAFE, are offering some courses where you don't have to pay any fees. And one of those courses is a certificate for in wool classing. Australian Wool Exchange Wool Classing Registrar Fiona Rawley hopes this initiative will get you thinking about a job in the wool shed. The course is a Cert 4. So a Cert 4 does have a certain time frame that's set down by government. 
people can come with prior knowledge and that prior knowledge obviously holds them in good stead. So that would mean that they would be able to move through the course requirements more quickly. So possibly between six to 12 months for those sort of people. And then other people, you know, it may take as long as two years if they haven't had any previous experience. So, you know, it is flexible in that respect, but it is a Cert 4. So it, it, it's not a lightweight course. And so in terms of attendance and uh, work placement, is it, do you have to go every day to learn it or is it a few hours a week? How, do, how is it mostly structured, the course? Yeah, the, the interesting thing about wall classing is that it varies um, nationally depending on, you know, the, the location. So like in a closely built up area, you've got a TAFE college that delivers wall classing maybe every 100 kilometres. So in that case, you might attend, a, you know, one night a week or a, a full Saturday, you know, a fortnight or a month. And then other situations, some training providers might have a lot of the theory that's done remotely and then they come and give in have industry visits to finish those assessments and see those practical skills in shed. So it, it really is a, a flexible delivery. The best thing is to, to find the one that suits you. Working in a wool shed, it's a, not a, exactly an air-conditioned um, workplace. So I guess what type of people does a career as a wool class suit? Yeah, interesting. I've actually just come from an air-conditioned shed, but it, I must admit it's the first one I've ever been in. So <laughs> times are a-changing. You do have to be physically fit, certainly. Uh, have some manual skills because it is, you know, there is work that needs to be done. There's no getting away from that. So a certain level of fitness. A- an interest in rural and agricultural environment, obviously, is helpful too. But I think it really suits someone who has strong leadership interest and also technical interest. It is, at the end of the day, a technical product that meets the processes' needs. And part of the wall classing requirements is that you lead the team, that you show by example and you problem solve. So those really good analytical skills as well. That is Australian Wool Exchange Wool Classing Registrar Fiona Rawley speaking to Cara Jeffrey and talking about all the opportunities in the wool industry and in particular looking for more wool classes. A couple of minutes to one. Let's get to the market now to Muche where 763 head of cattle were yarded for sale today. Terry Birkin, hello. A pretty light sale today. Hi, Belinda. Yeah, a lot of sales that have been expected this time of the year at Muchet. Today, with mainly store and feeder-type cars and some lines of good cows. Most of the regular buyers were in attendance today, with a couple of new buyers present. Younger cattle remain fairly equal. However, the cow market gained momentum and gained 10 to 15 cents per kilo. Plainville steers were making 390 cents to 462 cents with better condition up to 450 cents per kilo. Lighter Vila heifers selling from 200 to 430 cents while Vila heifers with more cover sold to 412 cents per kilo. Yearly steers to restockers selling from 250 cents to 300 cents while better types to feedlots realising 450 cents per kilo. Lighter yearling heifers going back to the paddock range from 200 to 328 cents, while better conditioned yearling heifers sold up to 400 cents per kilo. Grown steers selling from 236 cents to 368 cents, and grown heifers sold from 258 to 378 cents per kilo. Lightweight cows were making 158 to 226 cents, medium cows selling up to 258 cents, while heavy cows returned 208 cents to 250 cents a kilo. Lighter bulls for export ranged from uh, 180 cents to 460 cents, 
Well, mature heavy balls sold from 220 cents to 252 cents per kilo. This has been Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Terry, thank you very much for going through those details. I appreciate that. And Terry's going to be back tomorrow and he's going to be calling in from uh, Mushay again. So he's gone, gone and done the cattle today. Tomorrow he's going to be ticking off the sheep for you, so going through the yarding and the prices. And I'll catch up with you tomorrow, same time. Time for the news, 1 o'clock.